0: joining day two of this year's annual summit. We are going to focus this morning on the COVID-19 pandemic, which has brought social and racial injustice and inequality to the forefront in public health. It is highlighted that health equity is still not a reality as COVID-19 has unequally affected many racial and ethnic minority groups. This morning's panel discussion will focus on the COVID-19 African-American education and outreach partnership. Before I introduce our panelists, I would like to share remarks by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, representing California's 9th Congressional District.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lee, for that very kind introduction. And thank you to the National Minority Equality Forum for inviting me to speak with you today on this so important topic. Also, thank you to all of the partners of the COVID-19 African-American Education and Outreach partnership project, including the East Bay Community Foundation, the Congressional Black Caucus Institute, and Kaiser Permanente. We all know that systemic racism is at the heart of every crisis we face today, from the COVID-19 public health crisis disproportionately impacting communities of color to the crisis of police brutality. Black and Latinx people are dying at over twice the rate of white Americans and are dying from COVID-19 at younger ages. American Indians and Alaska Natives have also been getting infected and dying of COVID-19 at elevated rates and have been especially hard hit by the pandemic and its economic effects. Disaggregated data also shows high mortality rates within the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Since the onset of the pandemic, I have been working with Senator Elizabeth Warren on the inclusion of our legislation the COVID Community Care Act in every single COVID relief package to ensure that trusted messengers such as yourselves, community based organizations, faith based organizations, and nonprofits help reach communities that are historically and medically underserved. I was also proud to join Congresswoman Ayanna Presley in introducing the Anti Racism in Public Health Act which will establish a national office of anti-racism and health within the CDC. In addition, as you all know, we were able to successfully secure funding to address health disparities exacerbated by the pandemic under provisions of the Biden-Harris administration's American Rescue Plan and Congress's omnibus relief bill last December. And of course, I'm continuing to work with federal, state, and local public health departments, as well as community based organizations, to ensure that the resources and assistance are being intended as we intended them to be used. We, can ha- we must have transparency and accountability, and the money must get to our communities. We need to bridge the gap between medically underserved communities and life saving treatments. We need to work with communities to overcome historical injustices and combat the racist system that stands between people of color having equitable access to care. That is why the COVID-19 African American Education and Outreach Partnership Project is so crucial. Well before the federal response, our private-public partnership with the collaboration of members of the Congressional Black Caucus demonstrated the importance and effectiveness of empowering trusted messengers to disseminate accurate information and resources to our communities. We did set the standard for the federal government. We need to unify our objectives and strategies to ensure that African Americans and people of color are receiving timely and accurate information about testing, contact tracing, and vaccines. We need to uplift the work of trusted messengers like you to heal from the COVID-19 pandemic. We know the disparities witnessed during the COVID pandemic are not new. They are the result of a public health system that is a remnant of 401 years of racial oppression. Overcoming the pandemic and counteracting health disparities requires a massive partnership from Congress to community-based organizations. So I thank you all so much for your efforts to promote equity in public health, both during this pandemic, before the pandemic and beyond. I look forward to continuing this fight with you. Thank you again so much.
0: Thank you for those remarks, Congresswoman Lee. As she echoed and so eloquently stated, it all is about partnerships. So today I am so pleased to moderate this important session. And joining us this morning is Dr. Oliver Brooks. He is Chief Medical Officer and past Chief of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at Watts Healthcare Corporation in Los Angeles, California. Additionally, Dr. Brooks is immediate past Chairman of the Community Clinic Association of Los Angeles County consortium of 43 community health centers in the Southern California area. He is immediate past president of the National Medical Association, or the NMA, and has held several positions within the organization. Next, we are joined by Vanessa Grenine-Jones, who serves as executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus Institute. In this role, she is responsible for leading the organization and its mission of educating today's voters and training tomorrow's leaders. With over 20 years of legislative and international relations experience, Vanessa has served on staff for Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and the late Congressman Alcee Hastings. She has also worked with several state legislatures and in the field of law. Mavish Hassan is the project lead at East Bay Community Foundation for the COVID-19 African-American outreach, uh, education and outreach partnership. She facilitates multi-stakeholder and sector collaboration in support of inclusive communities and has advised local governments, philanthropy, nonprofits and UN agencies. Mavish has partnered with community organizations and philanthropic organizations to develop and manage um, collaboratives in Muslim uh, civic engagement and community-centered capacity building, and has developed and facilitated multi-sector coordination to support equity and language access, as well as immigrant civic engagement in California's communities. Last but not least is a man that needs no introduction to this summit, Dr. Gary Puckrin, the President and CEO of the National Minority Quality Forum. Good morning to you all. So I'll start off with a question really kind of setting the stage for this partnership. So um, Dr. Brooks, COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color around the U.S. And in mid-February, California surpassed New York with the highest numbers of COVID-19 deaths. Could you share some of your experiences as a clinician during this pandemic and the impact that this uh, pandemic has had on your community?
2: Thank you very much, Ms. Lee, and I am honored to be on this panel with such distinguished guests. And thank you for the National Minority Equality Forum for hosting this event. So the first case is hit in January in Seattle, West Coast, and we we, we knew that it was something significant, but we had no idea how significant it would be. By mid-February, the pandemic was being I think what most people have to remember is that we didn't even know that there was community spread back then. It started with those people traveling from from China or from internationally, or those that had symptoms. But it was around the time then where I suspected, and many of us did, that in fact there was going to be community spread. And then community spread hit. We did have very high case rates back then. And I will say that uh, Governor Newsom did step in and make some pretty significant decisions to uh, safer at home, shelter in place. What happened at Watts Healthcare Corporation, uh, where I am chief medical officer, is that we were seeing patients with fever, shortness of breath, and what we were diagnosing as viral pneumonias. And we we didn't know what we were seeing, just didn't know. Then when the Safer at Home Shelter in Place hit, which was when the pandemic was really getting going, we actually had to pretty much shut down. We went from seeing close to 300 patient visits a day to maybe 30, a 90% drop off. Our staff were almost terrified because people were dying. African-Americans uh, were disproportionately being affected. I will say that I was then president of the NMA and I actually had penned an article for the uh, National Newspaper Publishers Association, the group of African-American uh, publishers. And I, um, I called it COVID-19 and Black people. We were just then making the association. And I started when America gets a cold, uh, black people get pneumonia. And I predicted, it, so I said, th- I have a feeling it's gonna hit black people hard. And it did. so we had to lay off three quarters of our staff. We uh, had to develop the ability to have televisits. So then we transitioned into that as being our present mode operandi. And we uh, got PPE finally and then we had to deal with the fact that we weren't caring for our own people as it relates to routine care, preventive care, secondary care. So it, it has been a real journey. Then we ultimately came to this partnership with CBCF, Kaiser Family Foundation, National Minority Quality Forum, and are now working to have collaborations, partnerships, and as uh, Barbara Lee representatively mentioned, um, messengers, messaging information.
0: Great, so I'm gonna put a pin in the messaging and um, have uh, some other remarks to kind of uh, level set on where we are with this partnership. But I think the topic of messaging in particular communities of color is an important one. So um, next, I wanna pivot over to Vanessa. Um, Vanessa, um, could you um, share with us how the COVID-19 African-American Education Outreach Partnership came about and CBCI's involvement in this effort?
3: Thank you, Dr. Lee and Dr. Boehring. I'm happy to be on the
2: panel to share
3: uh, in the work that we're doing. I apologize for the quality of my voice. I have allergies, so it comes across. But I hope you all can hear me clearly now. Um, For us, our mission is to educate today's voters and to train future leaders. But that entails a lot more than just making sure that there are African Americans on campaigns and that we're all talking about voting rights voter suppression. It's also about forming African American communities about all things that Whereas Dr. Brooks says, you know, when we first heard that there was a virus or a flu on the West Coast, we thought it was kind of alienated to that area. By February, we started to hear rumblings of there's something more going on Um, right after the uh, South Carolina um, Democratic debate in Charleston. It's like literally the day after it seemed like the world fell apart. And so we saw that Dr. I'm sorry that Mayor London Breed had declared, you know, a health state of emergency in in San Francisco, and we were actually supposed to travel that week um, to San Francisco for one of our business conferences, Um, and then in March when Congress recessed still thinking okay it's it's a little iffy, but we should probably be back in a week or so. And that didn't happen. So I haven't been back in the office since March. In April, I believe, is when Congresswoman Lee said, you know, we've got to do something to um, help our African-American communities because this is disproportionately impacting us. Um, And she could see that early on, April, and, and, you know, as we were moving across the country, we could see that there were more and more cases. Initially, though, you know, there was this conversation about how COVID is not really affecting African-Americans. And so it went to not affecting them to being disproportionately impacted by it. So she came to us to talk about what we could do um, because as a auxiliary organization of the Congressional Black Caucus, we're nonprofit and we're nonpartisan. So we can have conversations that they can't have as members of Congress. Um, So we started having the conversation with her and she had the conversation with East Bay uh, Community Foundation and Kaiser and we, Went through several drafts of what a project would look like that would actually have immediate impact on African American communities, um, and so we went through that process um, until probably around about October, November, because we wanted to get it right. Because we were contending with things like uh, messaging and misinformation, um, and people not having access, or people, you know, saying that this is not affordable, or I don't have it. Also, in, including in that was the fact that, you know, we already had underlying health issues. So we were already constantly, as African-Americans and people of color, um, just kind of in a different space. Our populations have different things to contend with. And COVID was just one more thing that we added on to the layers of that. Um, So the project was started um, and we tried to identify within CBCI the areas that we thought would have less access um, Know, to healthcare and to get code testing and they would be probably inundated with uh, misinformation. So our area is focused on areas in the south and in rural communities, because again, different populations have different needs. So rural areas look different than urban areas, African-American issues, uh, areas may look different than like Latinx um, areas. Um, so we made sure that we fully covered all of those areas before we started the project. And uh, we've been up and going since uh, about December. And I'm um, happy to have some of the CBOs that are working on the project on the call um, to see how this turns out for us. Uh, we think we're having a greater impact. We see that cases are going down, uh, more people are getting tested. Um, and then there was the vaccine. So, you know, we also had that additional layer of overcoming hesitancy and mistrust and misinformation about the vaccine. Um, so this is how CBCI got involved because Congresswoman Lee told us we had to <laughs> save our people. Cool. So here we are. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for that, Vanessa. And just a reminder to our attendees: if you have any questions for our panelists, please feel free to use the Q and A box, and we will address those in the Q and A segment at the end of the session. So, Vanessa really kind of set the context of how this partnership really kind of um, uh, kind of formulated, um, and some of the heavy uh, lifts that had to happen within these communities. I believe you have a few slides you wanna share, but you've led a number of multi-stakeholder efforts focused on minority communities. Um, could you share a bit about this particular partnership, the various stakeholders involved? Um, I believe you consider this a very community-centered approach and um, really talk about something that um, both Dr. Brooks as well as Vanessa mentioned about the importance of trusted messengers during this public health crisis.
4: Sure, and thanks again for having uh, the East Bay Community Foundation join uh, MQF, and Dr. Brooks and CBCI and obviously uh, Representative Barbara Lee. Um, I do have a few slides uh, that, that lay out the, the work of uh, this partnership. And I'm just going to uh, continue to share and go through uh, the role the various partners have played. Um, And at the core of it uh, are really the community organizations uh, like the Watts Healthcare Center, like community clinics, like community-based organizations. But uh, as Vanessa and others have mentioned, it took a number of different folks, including NMQF, uh, as well as an advertising company and funding from Kaiser's community health uh, team and CBCI, CBCI's uh, really uh, insights into what uh, what was happening in some of the communities in the south. Um, the East Bay Community Foundation uh, just as a how we got involved and why we got involved is it's one of the oldest community foundations in the country and while we're anchored in um uh, Alameda and Contra Costa County in the East Bay in California, Uh, we really have served as both regional and national partners to other to philanthropy in general to donors to corporations um, and uh, to governments as well as communities uh, to, uh, to address structural barriers to eliminate structural barriers to really advance racial equity and so that's so this project is really uh, at the core of the work that EBCF does in our communities with our communities. Uh, but as you can see, a range of partners. Um, the anchor organizations, or what we end up calling the CBOs, there's 12 anchor organizations across the United States, but they're really partnering with up to or over 30 uh, community-based Uh, organizations, and those range from, uh, you know, churches, uh, different congregations across the country, uh, to medical students, partnering really with medical schools and medical students, partnering with, uh, you know, really identifying whoever that trusted messenger is. Is it the barber shop around the corner? Is it the pastor who's been really serving uh, and if serving your community for generations and so i think that was at the core of it uh, but as you can see across the country oakland and la in california but um, uh, communities like tunica county mississippi beaufort county south carolina atlanta as well as albany and beyond in georgia and south alabama alabama that were identified by cbci here's the list of all of again the 12 anchor organizations Um, But like I said, there's many, many more um, uh, hyper-local community organizations. And as you can see, not all of these are FQHCs. You have community health clinics. You have uh, the Allen Temple Baptist Church and the Samaritan Clinic that are very faith-based. So it really is a wide range. Um, The role that EBCF has played has really been about coordinating, amplifying, and advocating. And as you said, Dr. Lee, with really community at the center of it. Um, And it really, this partnership has allowed us to center community, but really focus on communities that are hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, And as we've said before, focusing on the range of trusted community messengers to counter the disinformation. Ongoing disinformation, really. Um, and one of the pieces that we've heard time and again uh, from our CBO partners, it's less about vaccine hesitancy. It's more about really listening to the community to understand where they're at so that they're really able to make better informed decisions about their lives and their families and their communities' lives. Um, here's just some images of the types of the range of messaging campaigns that have been happening. We've also partnered with FEMA, some of our CBOs to uh, 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 set up and uh, uh, vaccination pilot sites. Um, and I'm going to stop sharing and, um, and I've are constantly, actually that's the other piece. I think the partnership with MQF has been amazing to really understand the investment that's needed at the community level, but also in terms of data infrastructure to inform systemic change because in the end, that's what we're really after.
0: Thank you so much for that, Mavish, Um, I really appreciate, Um, did you want to continue?
4: Stop sharing, sorry. Okay.
0: (laughs) No worries. So thank you so much, Mavish, for sharing that important insight on this particular partnership. Um, I really feel that um, you really shared with us why um, this effort came about, how it's coming about and the importance of partnership in this effort. Um, Dr. Puckran, I know NMQF has had its hands on a number of, in, in uh, a number of programmatic and research efforts focused on COVID-19. One of these efforts, um, I believe, uh, that you wanted to talk about today is HealthNet. And for those tuning in today, please share more information about this collaborative information and data exchange platform and how organizations like those involved in this partnership, as well as others, can use it to combat COVID.
5: So good morning, everyone. um, We were approached by Congressman Barbara Lee uh, to come in and uh, provide some um, evaluation as well as uh, data backbone uh, for this initiative, uh, and it really was quite a learning experience for us. Uh, we did a number of calls with uh, CBOs and listened very, very carefully uh, to their experiences on the ground uh, with COVID. Um, uh, there was tremendous variations. Um, some of the stories I just uh, really uh, amazing and heartfelt. And um, uh, I stand out in my mind is um, the Asian Health Service uh, and the challenges, they, double challenges of racism and attacks uh, that were going on in their community about the, the virus as well as uh, having to get um, their folks um, comfortable enough to come out uh, to get tested for the, uh, for the virus and then later on um, um, uh, uh, vaccinated. I think of the Hmong community um, which, um, to be honest, I had no experience with, uh, but listening to the Native American health service that was dealing with the Hmong community who didn't have a language, uh, uh, a written language, I'm sorry, uh, and so uh, they had to uh, use visualizations and videos and other tools, and then the stories, the disinformation, the absolute disinformation in the community, the, the monks believing, Uh, that the vaccinations were really an attempt to assassinate them, that they were gonna take the vaccine, and then a year later they were gonna die. Uh, That's just one example. Um, And then down in in Mississippi and Alabama, um, what I was struck by um, across all of the CBOs is that they didn't know about the therapeutics, that there were these um, medications that, uh, could have saved lots of lives, uh, could have prevented hospitalizations, uh, but they were underutilized. In fact, uh, we went to each of the CBOs and asked them for the zip codes of their service area. And then we worked with the, the, the National Association of Infusion Centers, because these, these covid vaccines, uh, therapeutics, um, you have to go to an infusion center in order to in order to get them. And, and we mapped them against the, um, uh, the service areas of the CDOs. And for the most part, there were no infusion centers in those communities. And, and so uh, a real opportunity uh, to save lives uh, were lost. Uh, so we learned a lot. And, and based on that learning, uh, we did a couple of things that we think um, will have some long-term um, impact. The first is we developed the COVID index. We we could never understand, quite frankly, um, why we were not not just mapping uh, where the the virus was in terms of community spread. But it is a a slow-moving train. You can predict it, right? And so there were no predictive tools out there uh, that allowed communities to understand where the virus was spreading, where we were seeing the surge, so that we could not just get appropriate resources in those communities, but it could inform our messaging reinforce, wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands, get vaccinated. And if you got COVID, um, there are these therapeutics that that could help you. Uh, So uh, we launched the COVID index. It's uh, right now, if you go to COVID.nmqf.us, you'll see not only we talk about the past in terms of uh, how the virus progressed, uh, but we're also offering some predictive analytics um, there as well. The other big piece was, um, was really messaging and communications. Uh, it finally settled in, at least for the National Minority Quality Forum, uh, that we need to set up a communications networks uh, that expedite communications uh, between our health services uh, and our community so that uh, uh, these trusted voices of these CBOs, and that's really one of their core assets, is that they are trusted voices um, in their community. Uh, and we needed to make sure that uh, we could leverage, uh, help them to leverage uh, their voice in community by using big data analytics. If you think about Facebook and Amazon and all of those folks, uh, they're using those analytics to drive business, but they're not really using it to drive benefit in community. And so, uh, we have developed what we call AI HealthNet. It's actually a series of of microsites um, that, if you go to uh, uh, myvaccine.org, for example, you'll see one of the one of the microsites of, uh, that we've developed. Uh, the long-term hope is uh, is that we'll create this common platform. Uh, that will allow us to support uh, community-based organizations uh, with analytics that help them to target and message in their community so that they're delivering information in their community at a time when people uh, can actually use it so you're going to hear a lot more um, about that about that activity uh, so long story short for nmqf and i want to thank barbara lee who is always uh, such a visionary for uh, bringing us in uh, to this conversation and allowing us to learn because we learned from the CBOs. Uh, They taught us a lot of what was happening on the ground that we would have never gotten in a peer-reviewed paper or sitting in our offices. Uh, They were touching people in community. And we learned from them um, how we could support them, how we could network them, and how we can build a better future uh, by by building upon this collaboration. So it really was quite an experience for us.
4: Thank you,
0: Dr. Peckren. Um, so just a reminder for our attendees, um, please do place questions in the Q&A. We'll be coming up on the Q&A session in about 15 minutes or so. Um, but one of the things I really want to um, discuss with all the panelists this morning is the importance of um, messaging and trust in communities of color. We know that there's been conversations around misinformation and disinformation, but there's also been a lot of conversations around vaccine hesitancy in communities of color. Do you feel, one, that there truly is vaccine hesitancy, or are there other issues at play?
2: I, I can speak to that. Yes, there is vaccine hesitancy, <clears throat> but on a more optimistic note, it is diminishing. Over time, um, there's the studies that I've been um, accessing and reading show that it's due to mistrust of the government, the fact that the vaccine was developed too rapidly, and concern that African Americans are being inappropriately targeted. I would say that all three are inaccurate but understandable. So as it relates to Dealing with hesitancy, one has to look the person in the eye and accept that where they're coming from is real and then go to where they are. This is one of those situations where there clearly is not one size fits all. Um, Again, Kaiser Family Foundation has some excellent data that I've been seeing and as I will say that there is a segment of the black community, probably around 18% that is saying they will not get vaccinated no matter what and then the other 82 percent either have been vaccinated or are kind of on the fence so if you put your efforts into those that are on the fence you get 82 percent of the african-american population vaccinated you're very close to herd immunity so um there, I'm, I'm very optimistic, well I'm saying cautiously optimistic. And one anecdote, a close worker at my health center has been not getting vaccinated. Everyone in her family got vaccinated. and She came to me yesterday and said, I have an appointment to get the JNJ vaccine, which is back on the market. And she's a female less than 50, which would put her theoretically higher risk of getting these um, cerebral venous thrombosis um, clots. But she said, the risk is low. Everyone in my family is vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated t- tomorrow, Dr. Brooks. And so that was very reassuring. So I just give that as a story in terms of the direction that I see going uh, right now. The trusted messengers are the blacks in the community that are respected, healthcare professionals, and to a degree, let's say celebrities. So I had been hammering to this person gently, with a rubber hammer, um, you need to strongly consider getting vaccinated. And it happened.
0: That's really important, the messengers that you mentioned. Dr. Pucker? Yeah, I just wanna
5: um, uh, talk a little bit about this trust and and messaging issue. Um, Our our minority communities in this country are, are being targeted. They're being targeted by Foreigners, they're being targeted uh, domestically. um, And uh, there is a real need to crowd out that disinformation. Uh, There's a real need for us to have uh, trusted voices, having the capacity to talk to our community, particularly uh, in moments of crisis and uh, and emergencies. And we we, we have to put that infrastructure in place. Again, you know, I've, I've mentioned of um, just uh, the, the, the amount of trust uh, that are in, for example, the FQACs, their board are made up of people from the community. Um, and, and so um, they're, they're incredibly trusted. We have worked closely with FQACs in this projects and other places, uh, and we, and we see, that, see that trust. And so I, I think the moment has come really, Uh, where we have to build um, a a communications network that is using social media and analytics um, to power um, those trusted voices in our community and allow us to crowd out uh, the disinformation. It is really dangerous for our community uh, if we don't do that. And I think COVID is just an example of it. The numbers have yet to be told, Uh, but I think as we uh, get to the the hard numbers coming out and they're starting to trickle out in the Medicare and Medicaid program, what the mortality rates were like and the hospitalization rate, it is going to be a very bad story. And uh, we have to put infrastructure in place uh, so it doesn't happen again.
0: Thank you for that. And, you know, um, Gary, uh, you as well as Dr. Brooks mentioned the importance of, you know, providers in this in this place, and, you know, I think it's really important for those who are not familiar with fairly qualified health centers or community health centers to really understand the populations that you serve. Um, Dr. Brooks, could you share a bit about um, those, those two types of uh, providers and the, you know, um, populations?
2: A very qualified health center is funded by HRSA to provide care to those that are underserved. I was going to say underserved community, but it can be urban or rural. We just happen to be urban. I would say 90% of those that we serve are Medicaid. Let's say 80% Medicaid and let's say 15% uninsured and 5% Medicare and other. So we are there. We're funded to... Treat those that are underserved. Um, we we have physicians and advanced practice practitioners, and importantly, healthcare nurses and ancillary staff. Patients often listen to my nurses more than they listen to me, because. My nurses are female, they have children, they work hard, and they relate to my nurses. So it is really important to understand when you talk about messaging and healthcare providers, it's not just the doctors, it's the whole uh, s- synthesis of all of those. Uh, Dr. hakarin mentioned, um, Dr. Lee, I think I'm gonna mention you as Miss Lee, it's correct, man, um, that um, 51% of our board are users by definition, by mandate. So it starts at that board level all the way down that an FQHC serves the underserved and those that are at the low end of uh, socioeconomic status.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Brooks. Um, So as we all know, um, health and healthcare is not only global, but local. And um, Mavish, it was really great to see the depth breadth of this partnership in particular. I was impressed um, to see so many geographies, um, racial and ethnic groups, types of organizations involved in this particular partnership. Um, This question is open to Mavish as well as any of our other panelists, but um, given the work of this partnership, do you feel that there is um, a recipe or a guidance um, for how to do multi-stakeholder approaches, particularly?
4: Um, I think several folks have talked about it. It really is listening to the community, whether it's your board members that's made up of 51% of, you know, who you're partnering with. Uh, and once you center them, they, it's, it's the community members and we've seen this. Uh, we were in a conversation with uh, Samaritan Clinic in Albany, Georgia yesterday. And she was talking about what it meant she's the ceo of samaritan clinic right and she's talking about what it meant for her to get vaccinated and for her 17 year old son a young african-american male to get vaccinated in albany georgia and what that process was about her education and then this young man's education by the way, is working on a video that we're hoping to post uh, for our community members because that's what messaging is all about. Get the 17-year-old uh, young man to tell us why he uh, got vaccinated. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's about listening uh, to community members because they are able to, and they have, we've seen this, adapt to the pandemic. It's been, it's evolved. Even this project has evolved so much since uh, April of last year, right? And, and we've really listened to the CBOs on the ground to say, April 2020, this is what we needed. And April 2021, this is where we're going. Uh, so informing pandemic response, but also really uh, uh, informing the systemic reform that's needed. Because uh, as uh, Dr. Pakrin said, this, this is just the tip of the iceberg and how we going to build on these uh, community messengers and community navigators, where you have medical students at Grady who are on the phone calling up uh, older adults in their community to talk to them about their concerns uh, and get them the services that they need. How do you systemize that? How do you create systemic reform um, that's led by the community? I think that's really the answer. Dr.
3: Lee, I wanted to address that question as well. Um, I think a key component to this is, as Mavish said, listening to the community, but also understanding the cultural differences and the geographical, geographic differences between these communities, and the things that are embedded in them culturally, as well as where they're geographically located. Um, as we said, the urban areas are different. I, you know, I live in DC, in the DC area. Um, and I remember when they were offering up vaccines to uh, CVS. And then I said, oh, OK, well, that's great. Everybody go to CVS. And then Congressman Thompson reminded me, there's no CVS in Tunica County, Mississippi, Vanessa. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no local drugstore that you're going to run to to get a vaccine. And so I was like, really? You know, and I think about rural areas, you're thinking, OK, there's limited access. But basic things like a pharmacy less than two to five miles away, is not something that they have access to. And so this project brought, you know, COVID testing and vaccines to those communities. Um, and when I went to get vaccinated, I had an older gentleman there. He had to be in his 70s or 80s. He was in tears because he was so happy to receive his first shot. Because he said he had lost so many family and friends in this short period of time that he was so grateful that it was there, and, you know. And I'm still battling with my family members about getting a vaccine. And, you know, they always want to cite um, the Tuskegee experiment. (laughs) it's like, you you weren't even there. What are you talking about? And I get it, you know, we are under attack on all sides. So I get the mistrust. But you have to weigh your alternatives. So, you know, at least I know that being vaccinated, I'm not going to die from COVID today. You know, we worry about the side effects or whatever may happen from that. But it won't be because I, you know, didn't protect myself and my family and the community against me spreading COVID to them. Um, so I think that's also an important message and understanding, you know, understanding the hesitancy and then explaining it a way to get over it so that they will get vaccinated to protect the community. So I think it's um, understanding, listening, um, a passion for the work. You've got to really want to do this as well can't be something you're just doing to check the box because the government says you should or because it's just a great idea you really
0: have to be invested in those areas that you're serving yeah. thank you for that vanessa go
5: ahead gary yeah i just want to um jump in because one of the one of the things that we um thought about as we were working on this project um, there was this great diversity right um, both urban and rural and cultural um and uh, you know the question was How do do we harmonize? Where where are those points of intersection, uh, where it starts to to come together? And one of the things I started to appreciate as we were um, working on this is, and I'm I'm gonna try to see if I can say this in a simplified way. Um, When you start to cluster populations, um, bringing them together, um, geography starts to melt away, right? Um, And and what what I mean by that is, um, if you if you remember back in the um, in the, in the uh, 2015 election, uh, where uh, people saw uh, the panhandle of Florida um, uh, uh, going for the path interest rate, they knew that like communities in Minnesota and Wisconsin uh, were going to go that way. That was uh, for those who were in, into the demography. They knew that's exactly what was going to happen. We can do that. Um, uh, the technology is there for us to define to, to our communities and get them information in a way in which they can use it um, uh, in a timely way, uh, and that's the power of this of this interaction uh, that we are creating here. Um, it is it, it's a learning community. I think that's the most important to be reminded of what we're talking about is building a learning community and helping those who have the ability to communicate trusted voices and, and provide services, they're leveraged. Uh, and, uh, and so I think the message that I wanna push out to everyone is you too can be part of this partnership. This is not a closed network. Uh, we are talking about building a broad network bringing together our community um, so that we can never have this again. You can't allow your community to get decimated like this with people standing on the sideline who could have done better, right? Um, you know, you, you got to say we can't do that. anymore. And so um, we are we are reaching out and, and saying, look, we want to partner. I think the, the foundation is starting to be laid. It's not um, it's not permanent uh, in the sense that um, we, we need others to come in, broaden the conversation. I think that that's really the power of, of what of this whole thing has been about.
0: Thank you for that. Um, you know, Dr. Brooks, I, I recognize from your bio that you are the past chairman of the Community Clinic Association of Los Angeles County. And given the impact that this pandemic has had on LA County and that consortium of forty-three community health centers, what are some of those, as, as Dr. Puckrin mentioned, um, learnings? Uh, you know um, uh, that you've that you've gathered from your peers across um, LA County um, during this pandemic? Are there best practices, et cetera, that you've utilized?
2: So first of all. When I was chair, I, we started, we used to meet once a month. So we started meeting once a week. So just sharing information on a more frequent basis. Um, what Dr. Pakram mentioned was really important was um, therapeutics. So one of the clinics t- began doing infusions and they were allowing us to refer patients to them to get infusions. And that was when it wasn't as well known, it wasn't as accessible. So that a basic concept of best practices of treatment, um, other than oxygen and, and prayer, um, the, th- the therapeutics was important. We also shared best practices as related to how to, s- going forward, how to set up testing centers. When I set up my testing center at Watts Healthcare Corporation, I learned from going to another center AltaMed, to see how they were doing it and i and i fitted hours to theirs and now as it relates to setting up vaccinations i have f- learned from other sites in terms of how they are doing vaccinations how they were using the system in, in california my turn dealing with the tpa blue shield promise so just by the concept that we have here and now of partnering collaborating just that cross-fertilization of information has allowed our health center to better treat and they've learned from from Watts Health Care Corporation how to manage certain areas uh, telehealth again I think it's important to understand that beyond the pandemic and COVID our people suffered because they weren't getting the care that they needed because they weren't going to the doctor. So we we worked together to determine how best to provide telehealth services, how to get quality care in the face of a a pandemic, how to deal with funding. So um, by working collaboratively and in cooperation and not competition, which is also important, we were able to um, find a path through this And the last thing I'll say, don't forget testing. Because testing is is still there. And early on, one thing that people didn't really, I think, understand is African-Americans had higher rates of positivity. It wasn't because we were more infected. It was because we had to run the the gauntlet to get tested. There was a study in Connecticut that showed 30% of Blacks were testing positive, 8% of whites. Because you had to be darn near you know, with an oxygen level of, of 60 to get a test. So those disparities are not going to go away. We still need to keep keep up the keep up the pressure in terms of what we're doing now. Okay,
0: so Vanessa, I want to pivot this uh, this conversation a bit, since Cbci's work really is in partnership with um, our members of Congress. Are there lessons learned you feel from this partnership that could influence future policy efforts?
3: Um, I think. For the most part, I would say that all of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus are very in tune and attentive and attentive to their areas. Um, I think with this particular thing having such an impact um, that members felt like they needed to get ahead of it and to make sure that there was funding available to continue to support these efforts. Um, Congresswoman Lee mentioned the public-private partnership, and although that's helpful, these things really should come from the government when your entire country is impacted by this. It's not something that we should have to rely on, you know, private organizations and companies and corporations to participate in, um, that it should be a concern of the government to face that. Um, And she fought really hard for that. So, um, you know, I, I can't say that there were any particular lessons learned from CBC or from congressional members from this, because this is always what happens, you know, Someone else has to come in as well as the government to say this is important because Congress is so hyper-partisan at the moment that it's just hard to get anything through and hard to get real issues addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that in the context of there still being, you know, just basic issues of gun control. I mean, you can't say that having gun control will be hurtful or harmful, to the community. I, so, you know, it's an issue of, it's a matter of negotiating. It's a matter of uh, language, um, you know, communications and trying to get people to be reasonable. Um, and that's on both sides. I'm not making this a partisan issue. It's just on both sides. As I said, Congress itself is hyperpartisan. So you're doing a disservice to the country and to your constituents by constantly remaining in that state. Um, but yeah, I think um, we we are happy that Kaiser participated in the project that they saw the need. Um, and while I say it's a government function, you know, we are also obviously appreciative of when private organizations step up and step in and say, "Hey, we're going to help you address this as well."
0: And I'm really um, moved by something you said around CBS. So one of the things I've noted, and while I'm not in a truly area um is that oftentimes when you go into communities of color you don't see any pharmacies Mm -hmm. and so it really is important to partner with CBOs it's really important to partner with community health centers and FQHCs who serve the underserved and so um, I just want to leave that there um In the last uh, seven minutes of this session, I want to address some of the audience questions. And so one of the questions is our community, I'm sorry, can the panel please comment on the engagement of uh, CHC health professionals in national clinical research data on COVID-19 data collection, interpretation, and communication back to the community?
2: That is definitely
3: a Dr. Parker request. <laughs> 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 say
5: <laughs> right. Let me mute myself. <laughs> um, so, um, um, data is everything in healthcare. Um, um, he, 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 it is it is a measurable problem, uh, and um, I know. And I, I, I I'm going to say this out loud. Um, I I know. Um, the members certainly in the caucus uh, have put money in the budget uh, to uh, get um, uh, data collected, um, particularly around the pandemic uh, by race and ethnicity because the data uh, was not being reported out. Um, the caveat I would make is we need actionable data. Uh, yes, you can collect data uh, and you could put it out, but if it's not actionable, if you can't do anything with it, if it's presented in such a way uh, that communities can't make use of it, or it is so entangled uh, that it's hard to disentangle so you can make use of it. Um, uh, I, I think those are some of the questions um, uh, that uh, we're going to need to uh, to answer along the way. Uh, and then finally, what I would say, um, we we also need to have numbers outside of government um, in order to monitor to watch. Um, you know, I, I just think that that's important. Um, we we have to you know you have to say it out loud, which is that nev- not everybody's operating in our interest. Uh, unfortunately, no, that's a that's a very difficult thing to say, um, but it is it is in fact so. Uh, and administrations change and they do different things and whatever happens. But the point of the matter is uh, we're now in a place, and I'm gonna speak two seconds from the African-American experience. Um, uh, And and I realize each community has their own journey uh, here, but here's the African-American experience. Uh, It wasn't until 1965, right, that we uh, actually came into the marketplace uh, with the opportunity to build our own community, to have a voice in the community in which we wanted to live. Uh, And we're living in that moment in which we're trying to build sustainable, healthy communities. And part of that is healthcare. And in order to do that, we have to have the data. We have to have the information, uh, be it COVID or diabetes or asthma or sickle cell or whatever it is, Uh, we need that data. And then we need to take that data and put it into bites of information that our community can use at a moment when they need it. Um, and we we don't need to just put them in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, the information has to be translated and made available to folks in our community um, so that at the moment they need it, it's at hand. And I think that's where the that's where the challenge lies. And, and so. We will continue to advise and encourage the members uh, because I think they're on the right path uh, in terms of making data available. Uh, We we have to make sure that that data is in the public interest, that it's available uh, so that the public can use it and, and use it to manage their lives.
0: that dr buckran um in these last three minutes i want to do a nice little round uh, robin um any closing remarks that any of our panelists would uh, like to share with our attendees Okay, well, start with you dr
4: brooks
2: well <laughs> oh, man i'm going yeah i think it is it. this is We're we're at an inflection point, and I've I've felt that for about the last six months, speaking to um, minority participation in clinical trials, we were 10% of the uh, vaccine trials, generally across the board. That was magnitudes higher than we generally are. Um, They're the the top books on the bestseller list are dealing with uh, racism. Um, we are having groups like this coming together. We have to not lose the momentum that we have now. I think it is crucially important. Um, Representative Lee is looking toward ultimately having legislation coming out of the work that we're doing now. So we have, we cannot rest on our laurels. You're not to, um, we're not to herd immunity. So what I will say is keep up the fight, be optimistic, but but be diligent terms of keeping on the pressure and have your eye on the prize.
4: Great. Mabesh? I think I've said it a few times, but I'll say it again. It's really let the community lead. Uh, And, and, you know, informed with data, certainly Dr. Pakrin, because if I have data about what's going on in my community, I'm better able to lead. In my community, uh, but just really let the community lead and figure out how to sustain it, whether it's through the Community Care Act, COVID Community Care Act uh, or through public and private partnerships. Uh, I think as the philanthropic backbone of this project, the East Bay Community Foundation is very committed to how can we sustain this uh, in terms of the pandemic and beyond. Thank you, Vanessa.
3: Um, I would say, as we're closing, I think we focus a lot on, you know, making sure that we're this misinformation and misinformation um, and about hesitancy. So I think going forward, instead of focusing on reasons why we don't, let's focus on reasons why we do. Let's spread that message throughout the community. So maybe that will take precedent over
0: messages of all the reasons why we should not can involve Great message. And finally, Dr. Puckran.
5: I just want to say thank you. It's been a privilege working with the CBOs, um, Federally Qualified Health Systems, uh, East Bay, Vanessa. Uh, We've learned so much and have grown so much uh, as an organization through the partnerships, you know. Um, Sometimes you can become an armchair scholar and you sit there and you think you know something, uh, but it's really important to get in touch with community, as has said, uh, and understand exactly what's happening on the ground. And this um, partnership has really given us this opportunity. And I just want to say thank you to all of the CBOs who have taken their time. We, we call them up on the phone, and you know, they're trying to vaccinate. They're trying to, uh, to do the test and, and all of the other things that they're doing. And uh, we, we beg them for a little bit of their time. Uh, So that we can learn and we've been so appreciative of the opportunity that they've uh, given us and I wanted to say thank you.
0: I want to thank this amazing panel and um, I am today going to kind of take a, a page from the book that uh, vanessa as well as dr brooks and others have mentioned and i have my second vaccine appointment this afternoon and i will be putting that on social media to help encourage my peers to get vaccinated so do your part to help to combat COVID. and with that um i want to thank you all the next session will begin um on clinical trials from the ground up thank you thank you
2: thank you, thank you.